1: see where he writes to the church this firsthand witness account. I've heard his voice and the depth and the warmth of his teachings. I've seen him walk through the crowds of people and minister to the multitudes with miracles and healings and deliverance. I've had the opportunity to touch and to be touched by the very incarnation of God himself. I've experienced Jesus firsthand as He was openly revealed, as He was made flesh to dwell among us, even as God Himself became visible for us all to see. It's hard
0: to completely trust second- or third-hand information. As the information is passed around, it can be misinterpreted, twisted by emotion or details that can be forgotten altogether. Today, Pastor David teaches you that the Apostle John wrote as a first-hand witness, which gives validity to his writings. John's writing carries the authority and truth to combat the false teaching coming into the church. John discourages blind, unsupported faith. Instead, he encourages our trust in an accurate, thorough description of who Jesus was. Now here's Pastor David in the book of 1 John chapter 1 as he begins his message, Do I Have a Witness?
1: end of First John. We invite you to take your Bible's turn there. The Apostle John is who we're talking about. He's of age uh, at this point in time. There's a lot of years behind him, a lot of mileage behind him just through all the issues that he's gone through. As he writes this book, we don't see that it's written to any church in particular. Uh, some have said it's uh, probably written to the church of Ephesus. I look at it as pretty much a letter to the church in general. Therefore, because it is that way. I think that we can take every bit of that, apply it to ourselves. We know that it's divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit of God as John wrote those things. So even if he's writing to particular things, we know that that spirit takes that word and impacts our lives too. Now, as we get into this, just wanted to share with you, I've had a chance over the last couple of months actually to serve on a grand jury. I do that every Monday. And one of the interesting things about the grand jury is you have a, a tremendous opportunity to be able to hear how wicked the world in the area is. We have all kinds of cases coming before us all the time. And a grand jury, different than any other jury, we just hear a bunch of cases and then we determine probable cause. cause. Is this worth bringing to the court systems? Does it seem like criminal activity actually happened? Does it seem like there's enough evidence to have probable cause that this individual or these individuals did that crime? We don't vote (laughs) guilt or non-guilt. We just say probable cause, and then we push it on then to the court systems. Now, sometimes as the charges are being presented, the uh, county prosecutor's office, they'll have the arresting officer or one of the law enforcement officers that were directly involved with that particular situation, they have them sworn in, and then they present the facts of the incident to us as the county prosecutor asks them questions. So they just respond to that. Now, at other times, if the arresting officer is not available for whatever reason, then they'll have one of the other law enforcement personnel who have read the report, read about the incident, become familiar with it enough to be able to come in and sit and answer those questions from the county prosecutor. They familiarize themselves with the facts from the report. Now, during the process of the hearing, Whenever there's something that's unclear about the facts of the particular situation that's being presented, well, we as the grand jury, we can ask questions to that law enforcement officer. We just need to have a little bit more information, whether it be an officer, a deputy, whatever the rank, where, wherever they're from. So if the one that's presenting the case is actually the arresting officer... Or they're one of the officers that was right there with, at the case, they were involved with the situation when it came down. Well, they can explain the facts of the case a whole lot more clearer and even elaborate on particular details to assist us in being able to get a full understanding, a complete picture of what was going on, since they were the ones that were most directly involved in that situation. Now, if the witness is simply one who had merely reviewed the report that was written by someone else, then solely because they weren't there and because the information that they have is limited, they're not privy to all the details, then we don't always get As much details from those guys as we would from the arresting officer or somebody involved in the case, as you can understand that. So as a juror, I'm much more impressed by the words of the actual arresting officer. Even sometimes they saw the situation take place. I'm more interested in his words than somebody who simply read the report and they're just kind of regurgitating what they read. They really don't uh, have a whole lot of connection with it. And basically, I'm inclined to uh, actually believe and respond to the actual eyewitness more so than the second-hand report. But I think that's probably true for all of us. That's just kind of human nature. You were there. You can tell me all the details about it. You simply read the report, and you don't have all the details. Well, I'm gonna listen more to the individual that was there. Well, here in First John... John is actually writing in his very opening paragraph. He's declaring, in essence, that I am an eyewitness. I've heard it with my own ears. I've seen it with my own eyes. I've touched it. I've felt it. I know it's true. And from that, we can understand there's no doubt about what's going on in the heart and the mind of John as he writes these things. Listen to his opening statement. Hopefully, you've got your Bibles. We are in 1 John chapter one, and John now takes the witness stand. He's been duly sworn in, and he writes these things. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declared to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. Well, what is it that John is trying to let us know here? What is it that he is experienced? What is it that he's heard with his own ears and he's seen with his own eyes? What is it that he was able to handle with his own hands? Well, he tells us here, the manifested life of the word of life. He speaks here, the word of life. And just like in his gospel account, and again, the gospel account, according to John, Luke actually takes us all the way back to the beginning. All the way back, literally, to Genesis 1-1 and even beyond that. Genesis 1-1, we read, "...in the beginning." The same beginning point that he uses in his gospel. In the beginning, in the beginning was the word. And here he says that which was from the beginning. John doesn't wanna begin his message somewhere in the middle. He wants us to know that the message that he's proclaiming is the same message that God has had from the beginning, that God's message does not change. We're in the year 2019. God's message doesn't change. When we hit uh, 2025, it's not going to be, oh, we've got to update the message. No, we might update how we present the message, but the message does not change. And here John clearly informs us that which was from the beginning concerning the word of life, it was manifested, it was with the Father and was manifested us. And to manifest, again, he uses that word a few times here. It simply means to declare openly, to reveal it, to appear, to shine, to light up, to become visible. If you're going to manifest something, you're going to show it. Manifest. A ship has a manifest, and that manifest is the list of everything that's on that ship. And so you're making clear, you're revealing what's on that ship. John wants his readers to know what was the reality, literally, of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And that's what he's writing here. He wanted his readers to know that in and through fellowship with Christ, will have that fullness of joy, that joy inexpressible, joy full of glory. He says, man, I want you to see that. I want your joy to be full. Now, John himself, he had personal experience as he had walked with Jesus for three and a half years. He was one of the early disciples that followed. Remember, it was Andrew and then Peter and then the two sons of Zebedee, James and John. So again, one of the very early ones, John was the one with Peter and James. They had a very close, a very special time with the Savior during those years. John knew that Jesus was the incarnation of the very Logos, the Word of God. He was the one, John was the one who wrote in his gospel account, in the beginning was the Logos, the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. You couldn't have a better or a more reliable witness to take the stand than the apostle John. Because again, his time there with Jesus through it all. There was even something special about the closeness that John had in his walk with Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry. Remember, it was John. Yeah, I know John described himself this way, but he was described as the disciple whom Jesus loved. But we don't find any place where any of the disciples come back and say, no, you weren't. He loved me more than you. You So the disciple whom Jesus loved. It was John who had been literally the closest one to Jesus There in the upper room during that final supper. Remember, it says literally leaning on his chest during a portion of the events taking place there in the upper room. It was John that Jesus entrusted the care of his mother to, even while Jesus was hanging on the cross. Woman, behold your son and behold your mother. Jesus gave the care of his mother to John. And John lived traditionally from everything we understand. He lived longer than any of the other disciples and he remained faithful as a witness of Jesus Christ until his death. So now see where he writes to the church this firsthand witness account. I've heard his voice and the depth and the warmth of his teaching. I've seen him walk through the crowds of people and minister to the multitudes with miracles and healings and deliverance. I've had the opportunity to touch and to be touched by the very incarnation of God himself. I've experienced Jesus firsthand as he was openly revealed, as he was made flesh to dwell among us, even as God himself became visible For us all to see. I was there. I experienced it all. And now I want to tell you about it. He gives the life of Christ in his gospel. Now he comes with, again, that experience, that validity of testimony to come now and share with the church here in his epistle. As he's declaring these things, There's a lot more than some nostalgic visit to days gone by that he's sharing here. John is actually setting himself up as an expert witness. He is the authority to come against, again, those Gnostic teachings that were hitting the church, and we talked about that a lot in the introduction. These Gnostics, they came in with all these new ideas and new revelations, and yet Jesus was from the beginning. He was the very Logos of life, and don't forget that word Logos. Translated us in the English simply as word. But it's much more than simply a a means to translate some communication or ideas. Logos is a whole lot more than that. In the prevalent Greek mindset of that day, logos held a much, much wider and a deeper meaning. It was the Greek mindset that introduced the idea that it was the logos that connected humanity to the cosmos. Or eventually, or thus to uh, to deity, there was the Greeks that brought in that idea. Logos was the law, it was the principle, the order of all things in the Greek mindset for the Greeks, the logos even transcended the ability of humans to be able to fully grasp the scope of understanding it completely it's beyond our understanding. It's in a a realm beyond us. We can pull portions of it and try to pull, but we're not going to be able to understand it completely. The logos was reason. Logos was power for men like Socrates. Socrates stated that the logos is what makes philosophy even possible because it's the harmony existing between reason and reality. Those are the words of Socrates. Aristotle believed that the Logos was the source of human virtue and piety. He had no idea how close he was to real truth because Jesus really and truly is the source of human virtue and piety. Philo of Alexandria, he lived around 20 BC till about 85. 50. So he's right in that range of area where, where Jesus' ministry was and on beyond that during the time of John's ministry. Well, he was a major philosopher of the day, but he was also a Hellenistic Jew. In other words, he was a Jew that was uh, influenced by literally immersed in the Greek culture. Well, his philosophic ideas had even a closer reality to the fullness of Logos. For Philo, Logos is a mediating figure. Catch this, what he reads, because it is so amazing. Logos is a mediating figure which comes from God, forms a link between the transcendent God and the world, and represents humanity as a high priest and an advocate before God you would think he read or perhaps wrote the book of Hebrews. He goes on to say, The Logos is the sum and the focus of God's creative power, and as such, it orders and governs the visible world. This isn't a Christian that's speaking this. This is a Jewish philosopher heavily influenced by the Greek culture. So he's got a mixture of the Greek philosophy and a mixture of Judaism in that he brings the true one almighty God, Jehovah God, into his philosophy here and blends both of them. Uh, Philo was so close, I believe, when you listen to what he, what he wrote, I believe that he was so close to recognizing the true incarnation Of the Logos. And then when you read the words of John, particularly like in his gospel, in the beginning was the Logos, yes. But you need to understand the Logos not only was with God, but the Logos was God. And so, Philo, what you're saying here is exactly right. And it was all encompassed in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Well, John writes here in his epistle, he's declaring that the Logos of life was made manifest among us, and this is who we declare to you. Verse two, he says, the life was manifested. It was made known. It was revealed to us. And we have seen, we bear witness. We declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested, revealed to us. He isn't asking his audience to believe on some blind faith. Oh, you just need to believe this. You need you just need to, you know, take that step in the darkness and believe this. No, he wants him to believe because, again, there is actual, undeniable witnesses to the truth of what's going on and how it happened. In a courtroom situation, the witnesses asked several times about the incident particularly the defense. You have a witness against the accused. The defensive attorney would come up and he's going to ask him about his story multiple times, over and over, trying to catch them in some variation of their story, which could mean that they're one of two things. They're either lying or they've made this thing up. Here, John sits in the witness chair and he repeats his connection with the Logos over and over in just these few short verses. Truly, his connection is experiential, not simply theoretical. He's actually lived it. John was at the scene. He experienced it firsthand. He wasn't just reading someone else's report. Scan a portion of the first three verses with me again. Look what he says, beginning of verse one. That which was from the beginning, we have heard. We have seen with our eyes. We have looked upon. Our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Verse two, we have seen. We bear witness. We declare to you. It was manifested. It was revealed to us. Verse three, we have seen. We've heard. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Again, bam, 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 he's driving it home. Yes, I was there, I experienced it. I can, again, testify of the reality and the truth of it. All too often today, and this is is literally a slam against Christianity today, but all too often today, Christians in our witness to a lost world we're not witnessing again what Jesus has done in our lives. All too often, we don't offer firsthand evidence. All too often today, Christians simply want to parrot the information that they've been given. Here, just read them this pamphlet. Just walk through these questions with them. Share these thoughts. Just share these verses. Oh, ask these proven questions. That'll get them right into having to make a decision for Christ. All too often, our witnessing plans and programs and seminars lead us not to declare what Christ has done in our life as much as just working through a set plan. We need to remember, though, the power of a personal testimony is not just the width of your scriptural knowledge. Scriptural knowledge is good. It's good for you. It's powerful in your life, for your personal life. But the power of our personal testimony is the depth of the impact in our personal collision with Jesus Christ. How did Jesus impact my life when I came to him? when he revealed himself to me. That's what's going to change people's lives. And over and over within the word of God, we see that is the testimony that, again, Jesus changed lives. And beloved, If you don't have that as your testimony, you can parrot the four spiritual laws, and I'm not throwing them away, I'm just saying the usage of something like that or how to have a full and meaningful life or a multitude of others that I've forgotten by now through the years as I've been a Christian. These little training seminars that you go on how to share your faith end up being more how to share this little booklet. But beloved, in essence, what you're doing there, you're reading someone else's report. And the testimony of that isn't nearly as powerful as the testimony of what you have experienced yourself in your walk in Christ. Open our us from within by the open
0: word. Thanks for joining Pastor David today to study the letters of the Apostle John here on The Open Word. Though our program will come to an end today, Your time in God's Word can continue uninterrupted. In fact, we encourage you to study today's passage on your own and ask the Holy Spirit to speak through what you read. If you'd like to hear more teachings from Pastor David, you can find them at theopenword.com. We'd love to meet you, too. If you're in the Casa Grande area, please join us Saturday, Sunday, or Wednesday for our weekly gatherings at Calvary Chapel, Casa Grande. You'll find service times and directions by clicking the church link at theopenword.com. Before our time is up with you today, We'd like to turn it back over to Pastor David for a quick request for you, our listener.
1: Thanks, Chris. You know, as this ministry continues to grow and reach further into the community with the message of the gospel, I know the enemy wants to stop it. I also know that prayer is a big part of holding him back. Would you take time to pray for us every time you tune in to the Open Word? Pray, too, for our listeners, your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and those who may have yet to place their faith in Jesus. This last category especially need prayer. It could be that the next message you hear may be the first time they're learning about the hope that's only found in Jesus. Please pray that their hearts will be open and that they'd make a decision to follow Jesus forever. Thank you for praying, and thank you for being a listener to The Open Word.